This past Lord's Day, we were informed that people were streaming into Jerusalem from surrounding towns, which is a direct fulfillment of Old Testament promise, and it is applied in the New Testament. The light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ was progressing, and with the progression of the gospel always comes opposition. When God is working and the gospel is progressing, we've learned in the book of Acts that there's going to be persecution. Remember the theme of Acts is the kingdom conquest of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is progressing. Now, last week we learned that Jesus was authenticating the message and the messengers as the gospel was preached. And second, we learned that a true assembly, a spirit-filled assembly emerges in the church. We look at them and it's a spirit-filled church and people from the outside looked in and they said, we dare not join this group. Instead of what we see in our day today, which we try to conform everything we do in the church to draw a crowd, that was not the case in the early church. There was a life-threatening holiness that was exemplified by the Lord God with Ananias and Sapphira and also the people's response to the Lord God. So in light of all of that, the pickup is in verse 17. And today I want to talk about two huge concepts that we need to wrestle with. One is holy boldness that we all should have if you belong to Christ. And second, we're going to talk about wicked jealousy that actually comes from an unbelieving heart. And I want to talk seriously about those two things today. Verse 17, here's what the Word of the Lord says. After our summary statement of what church life looked like, here's verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. Remember, Luke is a historian. So he's telling you that this is the the county seat, or the entire group, Sanhedrin 70 plus 1. All the political leaders have come together and that's this group, and Luke wants you to know that. And look at the, the Bible. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said... You know, it's interesting that Luke just kind of casually mentions that there was an angelic bells, bell bondsman, right? That shows up and he, not a whole lot of enthusiasm, no ex exclamation or anything like that. Just, this is what God's going to do, right? He shows up and he sends the angel. And here's what he says. The angel gives a command from God. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they, they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. 
And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Holy boldness and wicked jealousy. Now you note that term rose up there by the high priest. They rose up in opposition. In other words, he's about to take action. The influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the popularity of the apostles was more than this religious sect, S-E-C-T, could take. They were challenging their turf. Remember, Annas and Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin were pretty wicked dudes. They were religious professionals. And at this point, there's an unmistakable parallel with the life and ministry of Christ and also with these apostles, right? Because as Christ's popularity continued, people rose up against him, and it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin. So there's this popularity. And so it was a a threat against their religious system. There was a marriage between the Sadducees and the Romans. And then the Pharisees were the common people. The common people reacted better to the Pharisees because they were more conservative and they believed in more than the Sadducees. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. They were the liberals of the day and the, and the conservatives of the day were the Pharisees. So they had more clout. That was the Pharisees with the people. And the Sadducees wanted to do everything they could to appease Rome. And so once these upstart apostles are preaching in the name of Jesus, it becomes a, an issue of getting on their turf. The NLT says the high priest and his friends, who were Sadducees, reacted with violent jealousy. Now this is the third time we're encountering the word field. And this is not a mistake. This is not an accident by Luke. At first, he tells us that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke and preached with boldness. And then in chapter 5, we learn that Ananias and Sapphira are filled with Satan. And then in this text, we find out that the religious sect was filled with jealousy. We need to stop this morning and ask ourselves, when we think about being filled, what are we filled with? The Spirit of God, Satan, perhaps even wicked jealousy. So they're hostile toward the church. And why is it? What, what, what's going on inside of them to make them so hostile against the early church? And the answer to that question is they're consumed by jealousy. They were losing their high esteem rank in their community. Theirs was the highest on the social ladder. But here's this upstart itinerant preacher from Galilee who had come And announced that he was the Messiah and he begins to categorically expose their hypocrisy. And now here are these other men who have been transformed by the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're doing the same thing. So these leaders have grown sick and tired of hearing the name of Jesus. And note how strong that word is. They're absolutely controlled by envy. Their offerings are down in the temple and their numbers are down. And so that's cause for them to be... Upset. When you study church history, you'll notice there's a pattern. Those who are most hostile to the gospel are actually clergy. And folks, that's also true in the United States of America, even to this day. That those who are 
in religious positions are the ones today that are the enemies of the true gospel. Most of the guns aimed against the scriptures in our day come not from the secularist of our day, but they come from unbelieving seminary professors and preachers who simply cannot but deny the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why you can't assume just because somebody has an ordained title on their ledger that they're actually speaking the truth of the gospel. It's just not so, folks. Make sure you take note of that. At this point, there's no effort for debate. They simply arrest them, don't they? They take them into custody. And how do they identify them? Because these were men who were unashamedly speaking the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was authenticated by miracles and signs and wonders. No doubt that these men were with Jesus. Now, this is not just the arrest of Peter and John at this point. How many were arrested? All of them. And this time, they're not held in the temple precincts. They're put in the county jail. Any of you ever been in the county jail? You wouldn't admit it, right? Oh. Some of you have been to the county jail, right? Some of you visited, some of you have been incarcerated. But this was a publicly owned facility by the Romans. So folks, this was a rough place. It was not a religious institution this time. It was a civil institution. And don't you love how Luke explains this and tells us that they got out? It is quite casual that this angelic bell bondsman shows up. It's almost like Luke concludes that, of course, God did this with his angel. And why? Because God was not finished with them yet. Henry Martin, the great missionary, said, I am absolutely immortal until my work is done. Do you believe that as a Christian? That you are absolutely invincible and immortal until God finishes his work on the face of this earth through you. And at this point, again... The angel comes, opens the doors, leads them out of the jail. And I think we need to remember at this point that they were delivered, but not for their personal safety. Now, in America, we think, well, God, deliver us from terrorists. Deliver us from persecution. And God, you're doing this to keep us safe. Now, folks, they were actually delivered for a more riskier endeavor. Oh, we don't read the Bible thinking, do we? We don't sit too long and think about God and how he works in our lives today, actually, again, for a riskier obedience is why the angel delivered them. And this is what the angel came to do. The angel comes, opens the doors, but the, the angel actually gives them, an, a, gives them a commission. There's something that the angel wants them to do, and if the angel gives it to them, who's giving it to them? God is. It's the angel of the Lord. And the commission is going is to require more courage and boldness. This is what our church needs more today than ever before. We need riskier obedience. We need holy boldness. Now, in the U.S., is not the time to be silent. You can't accept someone's wrong as right for them. You don't have that right, according to the Bible. You must give the truth. So this is pretty awesome, isn't it? When the angel tells him to do something, it was, of course, God saying it. He tells him to go back to the very place where they first got in trouble and preach again. This is political. 
defiance. This is the government saying, don't speak in the name of Jesus. And this is his apostles defying what they told them not to do. Right? This is what they're doing. So you do realize this is where they got in trouble and what they got in trouble for the first time. So just as this, now think about the contrast. Just as the Sanhedrin is standing in opposition against the gospel, the angel says, you go and stand right back in that temple in defiance against them and preach the words of life. Awesome. I like this. David talks about being one inch taller. Well, this makes you want to stand for Jesus, doesn't it? Uh, The heroism here is phenomenal. The angel doesn't tell them to preach an ecumenical sermon and let's just get along and all just have the warm fuzzies. The angel says, preach all the words of life. The NLT says, the message of life. It literally reads in the Greek, all the words of this life. In chapter 3, The great apostle Peter identifies Jesus as the prince of life. Jesus himself said, I alone have the words of life. He also said, I am the way, truth, and the life. In the bread of life discourse, Peter says that where else can we go because you alone have the words of life. So here, they are right back in the same place and they're preaching Jesus Christ. I know you've been arrested there yesterday. But go back in there and preach the word, preach Jesus. You're going to be in defiance against the entire religious guild. But go and preach Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. As a matter of fact, preach all the words of life. Don't leave anything out. Amen? Amen. Preach it all. You know that was a great sermon, don't you? I mean, you don't want me to preach it all this morning, do you? But all the words of life. Preach the whole of this life that's only found in Jesus Christ. Preach that life. Now check this out. They heard what the angel said and commanded, and they went out and obeyed. Man, that's a novel idea, isn't it? I mean, that's so unlike us as Baptists, right? The Lord said, here's the command. Go do it. No arguing. It was stunning obedience. It was sudden obedience. They just did exactly what God told them to do. You know, in the Old Testament, to hear always carries the connotation of action. So they never knew anything other than the fact if they really heard, they immediately immediately obeyed. That was the Old Testament understanding. And so that was their understanding that day. They don't wait till things calm down in the temple. They go up there right at dawn when everything is going on wide open at the temple. Sacrifices are being made. Offerings are being made. The Bible says here they go at dawn. And so they do it because that's the morning sacrifices. That's the morning prayers. You'd have multiple, multitudes of people streaming into the temple for the morning sacrifice. And the apostles stood there early in the morning in the very same place where they were arrested before. And they preached the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Right? This was holy boldness. Determined faith on display. How did they pray in Acts chapter 4 verse 30? Just glance over. Excuse me, 429. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all. Do you think God was answering the prayer? He was answering the prayer right in their midst. So go and speak 
in my name, stand there, give all the words of life, and do so with boldness. Now, the angel of the Lord again did not say, come out and lay low in Galilee while everything settles down in the temple. It was immediate obedience. Instead, go right back in there and stand in the temple and preach the word. Now, you don't really see this in the context, but what really happens is on that morning, the Jewish council, council wakes up in the morning. And they've got these prisoners, so they think. And they're gonna, they've been thinking all night. Perhaps they take off their funny hats and their long flowing robes as they sleep. But when they wake up, they put on their funny hats, their long flowing robes. Remember, they have all authority in the land of Israel. They are the who's who. They're the religious elite. They really think that they control all things. That they have all religious power. And they're getting ready to deal with the business of the day. How are we going to deal with these prisoners? So they gather together. And by addressing the Senate, Luke is emphasizing its political power in Jerusalem. It would be like you standing against the political power if they were totally against you in the U.S. You were standing before the Congress or the Supreme Court. And you're standing before them. So this entire political power. What are we going to do with these apostles? So they send out their police to get them out of the prison. And you know the story. Uh, everything's locked down, but there are no prisoners. It's kind of hard to have a trial if you don't have a criminal. Right? Uh, they're going to put these guys on trial. Where are the prisoners? The locks were in place. The guards were not sleeping. And the text says they're perplexed. You know, that word is used again in Act, before in Acts 2 when they hear those divided tongues, the, when they hear the fulfillment of Babel and the languages are now being understood, everybody in their own language, it says that the people were greatly perplexed. They had this issue going on in their mind where they couldn't figure out what was going on. They were disturbed and puzzled. I would be too, wouldn't you? If you put them behind bars and you lock them and the, and the guards are sitting outside but there's no one inside, that's cause for alarm. Especially if you don't believe in the supernatural, like the Sadducees. What's going on? They ask the question, what's going to become of all of this? Why do they ask that? Because they're wondering, well, is it perhaps that these guards are on their side too? What's going on? Hopefully it's not the supernatural so that we don't have to deal with another man that's blind. I mean, that's a beggar and can't walk. And he's been healed. They've already had to deal with that. So whatever the case, we know that they had to be thinking this is not ordinary. But somebody calls and says, hey, don't worry about it, fellas. We found them. You don't have to look too far. They're right there where we arrested them the first time. They're back in the temple and they're preaching. There was no border check and there was no place to hide. They're right out there where we found them the day before. They're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. And the Sanhedrin is at a loss at this point. They commanded these guys not to preach, not to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. And yet they are doggedly defying them. And they're continuing to do exactly what they told them not to do. The boldness is awesome, isn't it? How incredible this is for us. How it should inspire us. But their wicked jealousy is also incredible. They decide not to take them by force. You know why? Because the apostles were popular among the people. And they were a little bit afraid of being stoned to death. 
And it's kind of like they looked over there at Eric, and he's the one preaching. They say, get over here. And just kind of quietly, you know, come over here, let me talk to you a moment. And they began to tell them, hey, you are doing again what we told you not to do. And they do it kind of secretly. Remember, they came to get Jesus with swords and clubs, but that's not how they come this time. This elitist group of people who's supposed to have all authority are gripped with fear. Do I have to remind you of Matthew 28, 19, and 20? It, well, it begins in Acts, actually in verse 18. All authority has been given to me. Who said that? Y'all know him, don't you? You're in church. What's his name? Don't be afraid to say it, right? Don't be afraid to say it. All authority has been given to me. Now go preach the gospel. The religious elite thought they had the authority. Authority, folks, get this through your mind. Jesus Christ has all authority. If you put on the scales, all authority that you can find anywhere in this world beside the authority of Christ, it's going to go like this. Because his authority outweighs anyone's. He has all authority. And so look what encouragement it was to these guys to know that their Lord had all authority. And that they were going to stand before them. And yet this elite group who thought they had all the religious power actually have no power at all. What a contrast between the members that belonged to Christ and the members of a council. They were educated, ordained, approved, and yet they had no ministry power. But yet on the flip side, here are these ordinary laymen. Remember, they've got their overalls on. They're from Galilee, and everybody knows it. They may have their Bass Pro Shop logo on there. I don't know. But God's power is working through their lives. They sought to protect their dead traditions while the apostles were risking their lives to preach about the Lord who came forth from the grave. Now, a couple of points of application, and we're done. Number one, unbelief is fueled by pride. Just note how this is given to us. Their acceptance of Jesus, their unbelief, was not due to intellectual weakness on behalf of the apostles' arguments. Their unbelief was fueled by the weak message. Not, their unbelief was not fueled by the weak message of the gospel that was proclaimed. It wasn't due to the veracity of what was being proclaimed. It was almost impossible to reject what was taking place before their very eyes. With miracle upon miracle and sign upon sign and wonder upon wonder, their unbelief, folks, was motivated by jealousy. Pride and jealousy. Unbelief was fueled by pride and jealousy. It was the same way that they dealt with Jesus Christ, was it not? It was their envy. It was their jealousy. Now, there's not one hint of the Sanhedrin meeting together and saying, we don't believe the gospel because Jesus did not come forth from the grave. They don't say that at this point. They're not saying anything about that at all. You know, unbelief is the most irrational and insane thing that we could ever imagine. And their unbelief is fueled by plain pride and religious jealousy. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, it's not because that the message is not clear. It's not because the gospel is intellectually implausible. It's because somewhere down deep in your heart, there is unrighteousness, which separates you from God. 
Unrighteousness breeds irrationality. When you're unrighteous and you're a natural person, you can't see the gospel. It's impossible. You can't see the gospel. Folks, there's no other way to explain these people. Prison doors are opened up. Men are getting up and walking that could never walk again. You can't throw that away. And they knew full well they could not explain those things away. Their unbelief is irrational. But it's coming from a heart of unbelief. It's coming from an unrighteous heart. The posture in your soul today, if you're rejecting the gospel, is fueled by your unbelief. That's why you are rejecting the gospel. And you have the attitude that, no, God, this is my territory. This is my life. And if I trust you, then I may have to give up some compartment of my life. It's an issue of pride. It's an issue of jealousy. If I trust you today, I may have to give something up. If I believe in Christ, I've got to yield turf and territory. If I believe in Jesus, I've got to surrender. And the pride of the Pharisees and the Sadducees fueled their unbelief and the jealousy that was in their heart. And they were so blind, they could absolutely not see the gospel right in front of them. Because they were blind. They were blind in their response to the power of the gospel message. Folks, I hope you understand how distorted our thinking is because of spiritual blindness. And some of you come into this church week after week after week, and you hear the gospel, but you don't believe. And you know the condition of your heart. The Bible teaches that we're dead in trespasses and sins. So how can we mentally understand what's involved in having faith in Christ if we are dead in trespasses and sin? Folks, when it's all said and done, the only kind of faith that's going to matter is saving faith. When you meet the King of glory, all that's going to matter is saving faith. Is The faith that unites us to Christ. Is it the faith that unites us to Christ? Or should I say, it is the faith, our faith, faith in Christ that unites us to Him. And it is so vitally important. Why? Because it is His righteousness that is counted as your justification. So you better get this right. You have to get this right. Are you going to spend eternity in hell? Why is saving faith so incredibly important? Why, why is it faith alone that justifies us? They don't have it here. The Sanhedrin, they don't have faith. They have unbelief in their heart. Why is it that God has designed all this in such a way that it's faith that saves you? Why not love? Why is it in faith alone that we are saved? Because God wants it to be absolutely clear that the decisive work of salvation is outside of you. You can't save yourself. The work is outside of you, and God wants it to be crystal clear that the decisive work of being regenerate and saved comes outside of you, and it is the person of work and the person and work of Jesus Christ alone that is the sole ground of you being saved. And they were blinded here. They couldn't see it. Some of us believe that saving faith is based on a virtue that is in you. And you think, well, I have the virtue of faith in me, therefore I'm being saved. How can I be nice at this point? Do you think for a moment that you had a virtue of faith in you that saved you? Well, you're wrong. 
That's not what faith is. It's not a virtue that God sees inside of you and therefore he reaches down and saves you because you've got faith as a virtue. Folks, faith in the Bible is a receiving faith. It is what you receive from him. It's not a virtue that you can give to God. And some of you Baptists need to wake up. It's not something that you created within you to be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So, when it comes to unbelief, the only way you can be saved is a faith that saves because it receives the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it to receive Him? Well, you receive Him for who He really is. You receive Him as the God of the Bible. You receive Him as supreme and more glorious and more wonderful and more satisfying and more valuable than anything in the universe. Have you accepted Him that way? Have you received Him that way? Paul says, I count all things but dung that I might know Him and the excellency of the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying nothing else is important, more important than knowing Jesus. Saving faith says I receive Christ as my Savior, my Lord, my Supreme, my treasure. And I count everything as lost because of the supreme worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But folks, there is a receiving that doesn't issue forth into a changed life. A natural man can come into this church and hear this sermon and say, Well, I receive Christ on the basis of the facts. But the facts are not enough to save you today. Who in the world would not want to be pain-free? Natural people who don't know Christ want to be safe. They want to be pain-free. They want to be guilt-free. They want to have money. And that's why your preachers are preaching for it on TV. You can be as lost as a ball in high grass and want all those things. Who wouldn't want to be guilt-free? My question to you today is, do you know Christ? Have you received Him? As, and I think, look, I really believe this is what's wrong with churches today. That's why you can't get anybody to serve. That's why you can't get anybody to put Christ first. That's why you can't get people to engage in foreign missions. That's why you can't get people to engage in local missions. That's why you don't see a lot of people loving God as the supreme thing in all of life and treasure. You know why? Because we really haven't received Him. Because when you receive Him, you will be different. Jesus said you must be born again. Right? And when you receive him, folks, you, you just don't get over it the next day and go home and go back to life in general. You can't get over being saved. And here's the glory of it all. I'm going to preach myself happy, you understand? Second Corinthians. Folks, how dependent are we on God to save us? We're absolutely dependent, right? We're dependent on him. Let me show you a verse of scripture. Please mark this in your Bible. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Y'all see how clear that is? It's so clear, isn't it? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen to verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? He has all creative power, right? To speak the world into existence. Total darkness. Here's what the text says. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Folks, who is it? That gives you the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ in the face of Jesus. Who is it? It's God who gives you that knowledge. Folks, we ought to be praying that God would take out the heart of unbelief. Shine the gospel on the hearts of people so that they'll see the glory of Jesus Christ. So they'll see Him for who He is. And folks, when you trust Him as supreme and Lord and Savior, then you'll live a different life. You have different understanding and different mindset. It's, it's not just get saved out of unbelief and get your fire insurance and on your way to heaven and don't return to it again. Folks, that's not Christianity. Christianity is a lifelong love affair with the Lord Jesus Christ. As supreme as your ultimate treasure in life. So it is. Unbelief is fueled by pride. You know what my prayer is? Dear Father, would you please... Send a harvest of souls to First Baptist Church, Ozark. God, you're the one who spoke the world into existence. And you're the only one that can shine the glorious gospel in the hearts of people who are have an unrighteous, dead heart. God alone can do that. And my prayer is that he will turn the light on in your heart and mind. Yeah, intellectual facts are so vitally important. But yet, unless it falls into the emotive sense of you receiving Jesus for all that He is, then you're not saved. That's the authority of the Scripture. And here's the last thing. This is an easier one. Aren't you ready? Be inspired by the boldness of the apostles. I mean, they're obedient risk-takers, aren't they? I mean, these guys were told not to preach anymore, but they do it. Folks, if you believe that Jesus Christ is seated on His throne, and that He is absolutely sovereign over all things. You can live your life and take as many risks for Jesus as you want to because God does not take risks. He's in control. He's sovereign. He never takes a risk. But you can. Right? You can because He's on His throne and He's sovereign. He's already proved in this text that He's sovereign over jail cells. He's sovereign over the hearts of men. And when we come to realize that God is in absolute control, it will free us up to be obedient risk takers. Some of you who are so afraid to get on an airplane, go to a foreign mission field, take that risk for Jesus. He'll take care of you. You say, what if the plane goes down? Well, you go down with all of us. Amen? And you'll be in heaven with Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Take the risk. Don't be so earthbound. Believe that God has all things under control. If he wants to land the plane, he'll land the plane. If he wants to take you to glory, he'll take you to glory. Right? Be a risk taker for Jesus. I'm not telling you to do something that I need that disclaimer. Okay? I'm not telling you to run out in front of a semi-truck and say, I love Jesus. You're going to get killed. That's what's going to happen. I'm just telling you, when it comes to being obedient to your faith, obedient to witness, obedient to speak the word, 
Obedient to take that risk and go on a foreign mission trip or drive over to Pleasant View Church and, and pour your life into another church and do some of these things. Be a, an obedient risk taker. We need some of that in our church. You're too boring. <laughs> Amen? Don't be so boring. I mean, the enemy with you just kind of sits there like, I wish he would do something. I mean, if you're not threatening the enemy, what good are you? These guys were threatening the enemy. They were a threat. They were causing concentric circles of trouble everywhere they went. And the enemy was after. Do you know what really true, what really fuels genuine heroism? What fuels that? It's the gospel. I mean, some of you dads. Oh, me. Some of you guys, you're going to die. And the only thing you left your kid is a baseball. The only thing you left your kid was how to throw a football. Does that matter? Well, spending time with your kids matters. I'm telling you, folks, it does. But if all we leave them is the ability to run fast and throw a ball and hit a ball, we haven't left them the most important thing. The real hero dad is the one who loves Jesus. And he's not ashamed of it. Right? The real hero mom is the one who loves the Lord and the Word. Because that's real heroism when people put another flag on the hill for the gospel. I mean, if all my kids can say about their dad is, well, he hung out with us and took us fishing, well, that's good. But that doesn't bring God glory like putting your faith on the line for Jesus. Being a hero for the gospel, that's what we need, right? So I hope you want to be that man or woman who does that? My prayer is that God will fill us with the same spirit of boldness that we see here. It's inspiring to see it in the text, but it ought to inspire us to action. Hey, they got the same Holy Spirit you've got today. They had the same Holy Spirit that we have today. The same God is still on his throne who said, I have given, I have all authority. Now you go. You go and preach, you go and teach, you go and baptize. Why? Because all authority has been given to me. There's an old song that was written in the, probably the early 90s. It's called, it was called, I Am Determined. And that song said, Hell's gates are trembling from saints' prayers ascending. Darkness is crumbling from praises we sing. Our sovereign victorious is marching before us. And we are determined to live for the King. Well, that sounds like Acts, doesn't it? And listen to the chorus. I am determined to be invincible until he has finished his purpose in me. And nothing shall shake me, for he'll never forsake me. For I am determined to live for the king. Are you determined today? If you're in unbelief this morning, my prayer is that God will shine the gospel on your heart. And your unbelief will change to receiving faith. And you'll see Jesus for all he is. Hey, and be a risk taker. Trust Him. Because God doesn't risk anything. Right? Would you trust the Lord? For some of you Christians, God grant me holy boldness. God grant me the boldness that I need. Would you pray and seek God during the invitation?